Howdy, Critters. Episode 80-ish, 83, 84, uh, Backcountry and Barbells. Uh, we're joined today by Phil White. Phil White is an author. He's been on twice before. I'm really enjoying having these chats with Phil. I'm re- reviewing some um, content from a historical perspective and then finding ways to relate it back to current times. And I think this book, Boys in the Boat, I know we're all stressed out. Things are things are interesting. Things are wild. Um, but guess what? They were also that way in the uh, late 1930s uh, going into the 1940s. And uh, I think um, rather than deny history and rip down statues and uh, deny those lessons, uh, let's 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 inspect them. Um, this is an easy one, not very controversial, um, but a great story. So check it out. Uh, it'd be really cool. Uh, pick up that book, uh, Boys in the Boat. There's a great kids edition. There's an adult edition. Um, there's a documentary. You can listen to it. It's a captivating story, and I'd, I'd, I'd highly suggest you um, adding it to your uh, to your reading list. Um, with that in mind, too, guys, um, if you enjoy these interviews that we're bringing in some other personalities, great. Um, also, and if there's folks that you're interested in hearing us uh, talk with or add to add to the guest list. We'd love to do it. Um, uh, right now, we're following mine and Jeremy's interests pretty hard. But um, if you have them out there, and if you'd like our take on something you like, or just maybe another book we can read, another person we can interview, or someone we can ask questions, we'd love to do it. Pass it along. Contact us through email, through Instagram, through the website, and uh, we'll find a way to make that happen. Um, before we get into the episode, quick nod to uh, show sponsor Ellsworth Socks. Check them out, guys. Go to ellsworthsocks.com. Um, the most advanced sock in the game, uh, patented V-channel technology, will keep your feet drier um, as you try to go longer, deeper um, into the woods. Elk season is right around the corner. Your general deer season. All of these um, great western states are going to start opening up. Um, spots in the east, uh, whether, you're, whether you're chasing whitetail going after antelope, um, pushing hard for elk. Um, you want to take care of your feet, and I think Ellsworth Socks is a great way to go. If you do that, um, you can save 20%, B and B20 to save 20%. And don't forget, even if you save money um, with these great wool socks uh, and don't like them, there's a kind of a crazy two-year guarantee. Um, if after two years you're not happy, um, they'll exchange that sock and get you another one. So um, Pete Dogger and the gang are, um, you know, they're putting their money where their mouth is, um, and they're trying to make the best sock for you. So interact with those guys. Check them out at ellsworthsocks.com and again one more time don't be afraid to use discount code bnb20 to save 20 percent without any more hesitation or information um today's episode with phil white and our discussion about the boys in the boat howdy gang backcountry and barbells joe shamanic joined by my fast internet friend for the third time third appearance um uh phil white uh thanks for uh, Crazy times, a lot going on. Your crazy deadline schedule, I'm sure, but um, you're making time for us, so we're doing something right. And I want to thank you for at least, uh, at least, um, at least sticking with me and, and joining me on these conversations about some great books. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. And uh, we we have a great one today. We're going to actually talk about a book, uh, Boys in the Boat. Uh, I, I just think there's some really great parallels. But uh, before we get into that, just cover some big, broad news. Um, Great American Outdoors Act signed into law today by President Trump, which is really cool. Um, lots of new access, lots of permanent funding for um, for public land access. So that's a big win for everybody. I imagine there'll be some new public access opening up somewhere in your neck of the woods in Colorado, Phil. But uh, uh, we, we followed this story a little bit uh, when you were first on, and we've, we've kind of taken this from get the Senate to do it, get Congress to do it. 
uh, get the president to do it. But I really like this issue because it does show some bipartisan coming together for for the needs of the general public and and to you know because public land to me is something that I think everybody can get onto, and whether you're hunting on it or camping on it um i'm seeing a ton of people on public lands these days so um just just to have guys out there maintaining it i think is great so um congratulations to public landowners and if you don't know who that is uh look in the mirror you are one so uh we're fired up for that follow that story at backcountry hunters and anglers uh Another thing to kind of keep tabs on with the show, we've kind of started this legs and lungs challenge. We want to get your hunting camps uh, fired up. Phil, did you have a chance to kind of browse at that little little pack challenge I, I sent you a moment ago? Yeah, I did. I think it's really great. Um, some of the concepts in there, obviously, whether it's increasing volume um, and just kind of some primal movement patterns in there, some good progressions. So, yeah, I think it looks really solid. There was a there was a power athlete guys John Wellborn's ex uh, NFL players done some really mm-hmm. cool stuff and I really like him but when I was kind of putting that together I started with this idea that he used to do conditioning wise like he used to just say grab something heavy and walk around with it for an hour and to me that makes me think of elk camp and like I'm never going to be a marathon runner but the more that I do that sort of just kind of heavy grinding slow pace don't push it too hard but but kind of go and build a sweat especially when you pair it with like being on public lands or getting the outdoors, I don't think there's a better way for the generalist to, to condition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I did a dad workout last night, right? The classic okay. pick, pick two where it was, uh, just some two hand kettlebell swings working up to one of my heavier bells. And then, um, at the end I just did four sets of, uh, of, well, not super heavy in John Wellborn's uh, world <laughs> That's because right. I've been on John's show a couple of times with Andy Galpin and, and uh, I've met him in person and he is a much bigger man than I am. He's a beast. But um, but yeah, just finished with some, some heavy carries and um, yeah, the old left hip's acting up a bit, the old war wound. <laughs> it does, right? <laughs> no, but it's, yeah, it's good. I mean, in terms of just functional capacity, I mean, that's why Great Cook and his cohorts made a loaded carry part of his functional capacity screen because, yeah, I mean, that's, um, we, we, we talk about, you know, all these movement patterns, you know, and obviously working with Kelly Storrett, what he calls his movement archetypes, you know, lunge, squat, hinge, um, horizontal and vertical push and pull. And those are the basics, but, um, Kelly and Gray both always say that an overlooked fundamental movement type is a carry. So, yeah, and, and what's cool about what you just said, too, it does expose some things. Sh- things shift a funny way, and there's been some cool research on it. Uh, who is it? Is it is it Stuart McGill who's done some cool stuff to show that, like, those asymmetrical strongman carries just activate the core in ways that, you know, maybe you'll hit it with a dead bug progression in some other places, but those awkward carries with some load are just unbelievable. And to, to even fast-forward it to someone who is interested in packing out an, an, a hindquarter, I don't think there's a better way to, to get after it. Is Am I right with Stuart McGill? Is he, is he the, the low back yeah, kind of researcher? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, Kelly and Gray both talk about that. Now, had I done my usual, which is more of the uh, simple and sinister style uh, single, arm, <laughs> single arm swings, you know, I just worked up to a 36 kg bell, which is, uh, is challenging and good. But um, I think, yeah, Kelly always talks about the anti-rotation there and actually t- – I just um, worked on a piece for Train Heroic, which I think isn't out yet with Tim DeFrancesco, who's obviously the strength coach at the Lakers for seven or eight years. And, Very cool. Um, and he talked about, yeah, that 
it's interesting if you do a couple of different types of carry in a workout that even if the loads are roughly similar so if if um you're going you know from a a two-handed carry to a one-handed say and you are halving the weight um overall just to, to manage that one side that it, it's still going to expose some stuff because of the anti-rotation whereas the two-handed you're trying to resist flexion because ultimately you would fold over if you That's didn't right. resist that so you're yeah you, you're um you're working anti-rotation from a, a spinal flexion standpoint and then trying to resist the rotation if you're pairing that with something like a one-hand kettlebell snatch or one-hand uh swing and obviously do your fast stuff first um then yeah you're going to be you're, if your obliques aren't cooked the next day, there's no amount of Russian twists or whatever that can replicate that kind of workout. Yeah, so so get after it. Maybe uh, maybe the one thing we could add to this is finding a way to maybe unbalance your pack in a safe way. Um, but uh, we'll work through that and um, get after it, guys. It, it's a it's a challenge in my mind that if you're going to be attacking the elk woods, you should kind of prepare for it. And if you're setting hunt parameters, why not test your parameters? And um, you know, one thing about that program that was super important to me was to make the hard work you know, a couple of weeks back. So then you could kind of compensate and, and, and actually enjoy camp. So test your limits, get out there. The challenges, check out episode 82. You can grab it. Uh, the, the PDF is also linked, um, in the backcountry and barbells Instagram page. It's free. It's easy. If you don't know how to start, um, I think it's a good place to go. And, uh, speaking on starting Phil, Let's start this conversation. Uh, boys in the boat. I'll just read the, 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 the first sentence on the back cover. Out of the depths of the depression comes the improbable, um, intimate account of nine working class boys from the American West um, and how they showed the world uh, at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin what true grit really meant. And um, just to kind of go into a specific quote from Joe Rance on that, uh, he says at one point in the book, and uh, this is something that I've I've talked to my kids about. Uh, it, the hurt uh, was taking its toll, but that was fine with Joe. Hurting was nothing new to him. And um, it's just an interesting book where you talk about some of these great characters, Joe Rance in particular. I think in almost like a biblical fashion, this book just like highlights some really awesome archetypes. I mean, you have ultra evil in, you know, Hitler and Goebbels. You have... You have adversaries like the Cal Rowing team and even um, Joe's stepmother, uh, Tula. And then you got this crazy hero who's almost, you know, comes from the ashes, Harry Potter, Jesus style, and Joe Rance and just does some mega work. And then, you know, there's even conflicted characters like his father who really, I'm someone who find myself thinking about a lot because his father is just a, a character who's conflicted in me. But, um... You know, if you to to kind of sum up the book in, in your mind, uh, it's just a powerful book to me, and it's just it's something I'm trying to work into my health curriculum. And uh, there's so many lessons I think right now that we can all learn from with it. And uh, when did you first pick it up, and 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 what was your general interest in it? Yeah, it's been been a little while. Um, I got the hardback right here and this is actually my second copy i lent a copy to someone as often happens forgot who it was <laughs> sent a few emails like hey mate did i send give that to you or send that to you and like no so i'm not sure who has it someone probably back when we were living in kansas city before in colorado i imagine but yeah just um i think rowing is the sport that it, it's like my biggest sporting regret that in england um as we find out in the book about like rowing on the East coast, unless you go to some privileged prep school, or at least at the time I hear it's changing quite a bit now, which is great. 
Um, but there is or was when I was growing up really a class thing there. And so our school didn't have um, a rowing team that, that wasn't even an option. There were no local clubs that weren't, you know, just exclusionary in terms of how expensive they were. And you probably had to know people to be recommended. So I, I hear from um, certain people that that's starting to change a bit and they're trying to open it up a bit more. But it's that kind of idea, much like in the Eastern rowing teams that Joe, Joe and his University of Washington crewmates come up against in the book, that it's posh prep schools that probably um, cost more than they make in a year and um, certainly more than my dad made as a stonemason. And uh, unless you go to one of those and then go to, to Oxford or Cambridge, you don't really row. So, yeah, it was always decent on the rowing machine. You know, every rugby club in England that I've ever seen has at least a couple of rowing machines. And that sure. was how we did our kind of off-season conditioning when the, when the weather was crappy. And so, you know, not that I, you know, rode any world records or anything, but, you know, my 2K time was decent. And so, um, yeah, just really always been something I've been interested in. And then obviously writing for uh, Sup the Mag and Canoe and Kayak and that kind of thing and being into stand-up paddling um, as well with the, with the family that it just um, – anything water sports I like and I'm interested in. So, yeah, when this came up, I was like, oh, yeah, this is one of those books where it's a microcosm history, which, you know, as, as you know, in my books on um, Truman and uh, Churchill, I'm kind of into that kind of small slice of life in the past and then kind of an underdog story and then you add in the rowing. So I was like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm down with this. Well, let's stick with the underdog portion of it, because what's really cool about this collection of kiddos, and, and it's one of the reasons I want to bring it into my health curriculum. You know, we, I teach a really interesting, I, I think the district I teach in is a real great, represent, rep, it represents America in my mind. We got million dollar homes on this lake. We got an apartment complex that's regu- regularly featured on cops. We got, a, we got a suburban class in the middle. We got down on luck. We got gangs. We got upper class. I and mean, we got it all. And, 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 and it's all working together. But I, I point to these nine kids, and I'm like, man, they went through some hard times, especially Joe Rance. And they got through it, and they achieved it, and they just kept plugging away. And, and even some interesting aspects of finding ways to just find positive moments in really tough times. Um, it, it, it's cool that then this working class group of kids does go back east and just hammers the Ivy Leakers. And they do it f- from freshman year through and um you know, it was a team that was built through working class kids and, and they allude to that. Um the author continues to say working class kids and, and they seem to be at a time when rowing was very popular to be like the first rowing team where anyone in America could point to and say, I can relate to that kiddo. You know, they came out of logging communities uh, around here and um I thought that was an it's it's super relatable in that aspect. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, just um, we forget how, you know, we talk about maybe going into a recession right now. Obviously, we had the recession of 08, you know, or I guess really 07 to to the end of 09 or the start of 10. So more recently, but we have no concept for suffering in terms of the World War One into the Great Depression and slash the Dust Bowl right into World War Two, you know, and, and there are a lot of historians now that take issue with that kind of greatest generation myth. But in some ways, I, I, I believe in it. And I think that even some of the stats I was sharing with my wife and kids, like, did you know that, you know, at one point, 50 percent of homeowners were had either defaulted on their mortgage or were about to, you know, mm. like half, like imagine that, like everyone in your town, half the people, you know, 
or have either lost their house or are about to. You know, the unemployment rate, I mean, I know we've, you know, I have sympathy for the folks who, whose jobs just got wiped out um, or put on indefinite hold because of COVID and it sucks. But if we're just talking about in terms of scope and scale, there's nothing comparable to, to the level of unemployment that um, is kind of the, the backdrop of of this book. And so, yeah, I mean, that just made me thankful that, you know, one, I'm always thankful that I get to, to write for a living and get to have these kind of conversations with you. But secondarily, um, as well as being thankful that my kids aren't getting sent off to to one of two world wars. <laughs> yeah. um, that I think that, yeah, it, it's just a book that makes you truly count your blessings. Well, even from that, let's talk about that for a bit and just being, we'll dive into the main character really quickly, Joe Rance, who again, uh, the poorest of poor conditions. I mean, when you read this story and and, just, and get into what he had to go through, I don't know, I don't know a 12 year old kid who had it worse. Um, it, you know, you, you, it starts with, for one, being abandoned uh, at some point by his uh, father and stepmother, and we can get into some of this, but that, that while he was dealing with high school, rather you know, and we'll talk about the unemployment issue, rather than sit around and wait for someone to fix his unemployment problem, he went and found a way to, you know, gaff salmon to sell them. Uh, he went away to uh, find bootleg stashes and switch things out, maybe from interesting means. But he found, you know, and he was chopping wood. Um, even that first time, the second time, or excuse me, the first time he was abandoned, which is crazy, he was... He was in elementary school chopping wood uh, to power the school so he could go to school and get taken care of. So it's just it seems to me that group of folks in that coming out of the Great Depression didn't wait for their problems to be fixed. They found a way to do the best and fix them themselves, which is something that. You know, I, I I think it's in contrast to how we're managing COVID now. We're waiting for waiting for stimulus money. We're, you know, waiting for a vaccine. You know, and to me, it's as simple as you know, eat fermented vegetables, take a walk, get outside, do some push-ups. Like get get your get your business together. A big contrast. Yeah, I think I think um, there's a case of necessity because the other option was you know they would die. <laughs> probably a junior alcoholic if he was stealing that that moonshine and drinking it himself you know and, and, sure. and probably if there were stats for rates of alcoholism you know the, the folks living in hoover towns basically tent cities all over america because they were unemployed and down and out that really those were the two things right like you either took the initiative and went out and made your own luck and figured it out or you became a destitute alcoholic and just gave up so mm. I think um, the mindset of not just Joe, but some of the other kids in that boat and probably their the ones that whose parents were still around, um, their parents as well was, yeah, like, OK, this sucks. You know, there's no, no no one saying like that. It's you can't say I'm hurting, that this is terrible, that this is hard. But at the end of the day, it's um, if you're thrust into those adverse circumstances it's diamonds or dust and and he Mm. just chose diamonds it just happened to take him a while (laughs) yeah and he found those diamonds you know for uh, foraging for mushrooms chopping wood and 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 to be honest i'm super conflicted again with his story because he ended up becoming a great person (laughs) despite all that so you know as a as a parent you know I, i i think about that and and i'm like 
I want my kids to have a great life and I want them to play hockey and I want them to do gymnastics and, but also want them to have some grit too. So I'm, I'm integrating little ways to just, whether it's pushing them a little hard on a workout or, you know, saying, using the dang no button, you know, here and there on the kiddos, you know, it's just something you have to do and you get some sideways looks from folks from time to time. You know, even every now and then I'll even throw a timely cuss word at them, you know, and, and a time where I can say yes and be nice to them. I almost will be just like, I hate to say just be mean, but I find myself doing that sometimes just to get them a little grit in there. Um, so, you know, as a parent, how do you look at that Joe Rant story? Does, does something like that influence your parenting and maybe think like, hey, maybe I shouldn't say yes today <laughs> at the minimum? Yeah, I mean, it's my wife saw a good interview with Matthew McConaughey the other day. And I mean, I like McConaughey anyway. I think he's a really interesting cat. would love to drink a few beers with him. And, um, I he's think on he's the probably list. One, he's one of the most, yeah, he's one of those people in Hollywood who's himself, you know, not just the fact you choose to live in Austin, but he, um, it, it said, he said something like, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but that, that when you're affluent, you know, saying yes all the time is easy because you have the means to, like you said, like, oh, they want to do, you know, be on the traveling team for this. Yeah, you can Let's say yes. You know, <laughs> they want to go to the movies. You can say yes to that, whatever. But saying no is much harder, but yet it's much more meaningful. And so I, I like that from a philosophy standpoint that, um, and, and even just thinking about like, the college experience, you know, because with me supporting my family on a writer's income, like writers are not CEOs, we're not bankers, you know, and it's not to say that we're hard done by because by most world standards, you know, we would be considered like McConaughey would be affluent. But um, in college, you know, I, I my, my working budget per week was $5 a mm. week. And if you're a foreign student in the US, you were not eligible for federal student loans right or grants or anything so okay i was a two-sport athlete so i had basketball and, and soccer scholarships i had two different academic scholarships and my dad helped a little bit you know out of his blue collar income as he was able to but i worked for a year i worked six double shifts a week at three different pubs okay when i when i went home at christmas and uh in the summer i was still tending bar, as you might see here, working as many double shifts as I could. And my, my only um, outlet was working out at the rugby club um, most nights w with a couple of buddies, um, Ben and Jono, and then a couple of pints of Guinness on a Friday or Saturday night in the rugby club. And the rest of that money went in my bank account because mm. I knew I had to take in this big check and hand it to the bursar the minute I got back. And then... Um, even the summer before I got married, same deal. Like uh, my soon-to-be wife, and thankfully still my wife and I were apart the whole whole time, right up until like a week before the wedding, because I had to go work and I, I jammed my junior and senior years into sixty-nine hours of school and got out in three three years rather than four, and she supported us for a year, but right up until the end, mm. I was working, you know, and so it, it was nowhere comparable to the hardship that Joe Rance undergoes, but it made me keep that GPA. You know, I got out, I think with a 3.97 GPA, I only got one B the whole three years um, because I had to keep my academic scholarship. So I thought, well, why not go one better and try to get all A's? And there's some subjects I'm really bad at, like sure. science. My wife helped me through math, you know. 
um, but I think that the, there's a point that, you know, we don't just look at it and be like, well, the Great Depression slash the Dust Bowl was a terrible time in America. Um, there's some lessons we can learn from it. But then those are only theoretical, because I think for me, it hit home that, um, you know, at the time you have to stay academically eligible to play your sport. You've got to work all the hours you can legally. You're only allowed to work 20 hours a week on campus. But mm. for me and some of the Kenyan kids, um, the kids from the Caribbean didn't get to go home to see their families at all during four years. They just had to live either on campus the whole time or with local families because, you know, they obviously came from much more impoverished circumstances than I did. And so for them to be out shoveling ton tons of mulch at the physical plant and mowing lawns and trimming trees and everything um, when school wasn't in session. And then you'd have, in contrast, you'd have some kids come in, rolling in in a new BMW X5, their parents have bought them, everything's paid for. And I think, unfortunately, in our culture, there's this thing, like, not that it would be bad if we had the money in the bank to pay for our kids' college, but side note, we don't. And you sometimes get guilt over that, either from family members and friends or from just society, right? This me this message of like, well, you've got to be saving 10%. You've got to have a year emergency fund. You've got to have enough money to send your kids to college. You're going to need X number of million dollars to retire comfortably. Like this, this message of it's never going to be enough. Whereas for someone like Joe Rance and some of his crewmates on that University of Washington team, getting through every day and having enough food in your belly was enough yeah. and something they would be thankful for. So I think that um, to your point, like today, it isn't just the opportunities that are different, but it, it's, it's the narrative around the financial industry, around the industry, let's call it what it is of college, right? Yeah. The business side of it. And um, yeah, this this narrative of you're failing as a parent if you don't have college fully paid for for all your kids. Well, guess what? Maybe if they had to have a job or a couple of jobs in college and if they slacked off and didn't go to classes and didn't study and um, there'd actually be consequences to that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There'd be a consequence of they might lose their scholarships and they wouldn't be able to come back to school until they earn enough money themselves to pay for it. It's just a different mindset. It's a different ball game. Well, it speaks to me like the back I hate keeps back then in the thirties, whatever. They were invested in the in situation too. It wasn't just this packaged college experience that whether it was Uncle Sam giving you a loan or your parents wishing off to you, it wasn't this like entitled experience that you should you should go drink a $10,000 beer because you're entitled to it. You know, we have, we have, we have friends right now who are sending a kid to college and she wants that college experience so much. So we're even under these remote settings. She's enrolling out of state at a pretty prestigious, uh, California, um, college that they can't afford. And I'm just in my mind, I'm like, okay, that doesn't make much sense to, for her to take online classes across the country you know, for for me, I have this idea of college like, OK, we have a little bit of GI money from my wife's experience. We're saving a little bit. And at the end of the day, you're going to go where you can. And now you have to put into it a little bit. And but but the scenario seems also to be a little bit different. I mean, Rance and his buddies were at one point in the book They're They're um, they're building a dam and they're working in summer to pay for college. Uh, but it, it, but that 
that opens up a can of worms about the 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 like you said, the college is an industry now, right? And you think you're doing somebody a good favor by making it accessible to everybody, but when you make the accessibility so easy that everybody can access it, it seems to limit the product. And and at least to some degree, it seems to like make it not as meaningful for the people who in, in get to it. And, and it kind of makes me think of that initial point too about parenting. It's like, when do you let off? How hard do you make things? At what point is something a challenge enough where it's a worthy challenge, but not a challenge enough where everybody can't reach it? If, if that makes any sense there, but it, it's, it's, mm. it's interesting. We're funny critters, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> I mean, if Rance was handed college, would he have done it as well? You know, I don't know. You know, I, I just, I, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it sure is. And I think that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, like, if anyone's listening and be like, well, you, you assholes are saying, you know, well, I have saved, you know, diligently and I, you know, my <laughs> wife and I or whatever situation it is have denied ourselves things because we have been diligently saving. Sure. Or even you're irresponsible because you're not, you know, doing that to the degree you should be. Well, that's all right. Like, that's great. If, if you have that account and it's got a few hundred grand in there or whatever it needs to be these days and you're sending all four of your kids to college and you're paying for it. Well, good, because they won't come out with mortgage sized debt. But um, the other alternative, of course, is that, you know, for those kids that have the combination of being academically gifted enough um, and, or, or on the sporting field or both and are willing to push themselves in both those arenas to get scholarships. And there are consequences, right? Because if Rance and his buddies had washed out, during the the semester been cut from the team well their college experience is done sure. equally if they had not worked every spare minute that they could have in the summer to scrape together the money to come back they wouldn't have been able to come back and it would have been you know just a life of manual labor and you know the, the fact that these most a lot of these kids it seemed like i don't know how many on the team were in the engineering program university mm. of washington but an awful lot of them i think when the little bit at the end like when the movie rolls the credits it was like so and so went on to become an engineer and then that, it, that repeated itself several times they all walked i think a lot of them worked at boeing right mm -hmm. they ended up getting in there and, and I, I wonder you know not to side rail the conversation but I wonder how much George Pocock had in that, you know, the thought that he put into building those boats. You know, I wonder if he oh, spurred, man, yeah, I wonder if he spurred a little bit of that in them to kind of look at the the nitty gritty of something. But, you know, mm -hmm. to, to, to what you were getting at before I derailed that was, you know, they, they were just invested a little bit more. And whether you're a person of means who can pay for your kiddo to go to school or you're finding a way to find a, a loan management or whatever that works for you, it, like, but on some end of that. You, I think it just goes to say when, when, when someone's engaged in something meaningful, whatever that is for somebody, that person also has to have some buy-in, whether that's paying for it themselves, mm -hmm. working for it themselves, keeping up a scholarship. And I almost feel like just the younger you are, I don't the, maybe age doesn't have to play into it, but there has to be some level of buy-in. Like you have to be putting some effort in because if you don't, it's just not meaningful. I don't know if you have mm -hmm. to, you have to be abandoned at eight. Right. And you have to you have to I don't know if you have to go to bed hungry every night to experience that, but you have to have something in you that's where you're fueling your own fire. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like we my wife and I talk about this quite a bit. Like with certain things, kids if they want to do it, they'll really push themselves. You know, like in my kids' case they're they're working on a uh, stop motion animation for this uh 
for this fil- kids film contest you know that your kids all dig this because it's another lego stop motion one so all right you know the younger one harry's building the sets and um taking the pictures and then johnny the older one is um is is doing the micro movements for the stop motion animation and then editing them in iMovie and that kind of thing but you know that so there are things that that will get them intrinsically motivated. Whereas when it comes to some other things, it's like getting blood out of a stone, right? And you feel like you have to light a fire under them constantly. And you're like, gosh, dang it. Like, (laughs) you know, certain traits, like the kids being a good mirror for parents in some ways, but in other ways you think, wait a second, why aren't they more motivated to do this or that? But they're not you. So, you know, it comes into play like control issues and everything else. But yeah, you're right at a certain point they're either going to sink or sail based on intrinsic motivation. Yeah. And you just hope that they can find something, hopefully something creative, um, but something that you no longer need to say like, oh, come on, bud. You you told me you were making great progress. You, you've barely done 10% of this thing. Um, that they just, whatever that thing is that lights a spark, that once it's lit, it stays lit. And from there, you can just step away and it's just going to, create its own momentum yeah and i guess as a parent you know as we're kind of diving into the the portion of it's just you have to keep exposing things and paying attention to it right and i was kind of today the kids and i were doing a workout um you know they're kind of loafing around I'm like get outside let's go so we just did some jump rope we did some lateral jump in and, and some split jumps with the kids and you know it was fun and they were we were getting some sets in, but I could see my one daughter charlie she's kind of she's kind of going through this circle of gymnastics where you know, she wants to be a good gymnast. She's about seven years old and she's stretching and doing some of this. And I can make that parallel with her and she will go hard. My son, Mason, he's not making that parallel of hockey. He looks at this train. I took him away from his book. That's how he sees it. So it's, it's interesting to even watch that dynamic with them. And again, I'm, I'm just torn on how hard to push him, how hard to go. And, and, but I, maybe it's just exposure, right. And just paying attention and, you know, Hey, try this and then pay attention. I think maybe from a parenting aspect, I see parents doing a lot of exposing, but I don't notice if I'm seeing a good bit of paying attention. And and I'm guilty of it, too, where you try and do too much. I'll give a cool story. Um, My daughter's got a two-hour gymnastics practice. I'll go and I'll chime in on a little bit. But sometimes when I go to that practice, I'll put the computer up and I'm watching watching this uh, e-scouting elk uh, module on how to find elk from my computer and then I'll glance up at her and she she goes you know I want mommy to come today because because you know when I look at you dad you're looking at your computer you're not seeing what I'm doing all the time and I'm like oh she got me right so it's that awareness piece that's also important like pay attention to what they like a little bit now you know Joe had to do that on his own his you know, no one was really paying attention to him he, he worked out some things but you know that I guess that's another piece it's just expose them and and Maybe ask them, see what they like, and 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 push them when when they show that interest or that fire, as you you spoke on. Yeah, and I think it's a question of not abdicating. Like for me, it's not doing fake work um, with the kids being at home the last few months and probably doing remote learning for the next few months. That if if you're working, be working, right? And I I, I heard a great thing from Cal Newport recently, the guy that wrote Deep Work, um, which mm-hmm. is an outstanding book, and then recently did the book digital minimalism about the need to get a handle on the socials because as we know if um before covid i think the average was 
if you were on two of two or more social media platforms that you you were likely the medium was like an hour and 53 minutes a day mm. that's quite a chunk of change so yeah newport talked about and this is just you know might seem so sim- simple as to be not worth mentioning but um said that regardless of what's going on he shuts email down at 7 p.m like even if he's you know working on the final stages of a book manuscript which i am right now and is waiting for an email from his editor or from the copy editor once he gets to that point and he you know he's just like no i'll just deal with it tomorrow um and so yeah i've already been trying to put that into practice because the problem is when you work from home which i have done for the best part of a decade the computer's always there as you say and so the oh i just need to go check this email turns into a bunch more things just like the oh i'm just going to post and then get off turns into you <laughs> an hour of rabbit holes so yeah i think partly um the very fact that you're asking these questions of yourself and trying to to do the mcconaughey thing and say no sometimes even when if you could say yes to let them know that you know it's not just going to be fully plain sailing in life and trying to get them invested and intrinsically motivated the very fact that those things are being done is an indication of true engagement um, and not just the abdication of handing your kid a fully unlocked iPhone or iPad and telling them to go at it and trying to call that parenting. Yeah, we're not doing that. Not that anyone <laughs> ever does that. No. Not that anyone does that at all, right? No, no but, uh, but uh, to the, the parenting's issue, and we've been down this rabbit hole a little bit, and we'll avoid it because I'll, I'll switch gears. But uh, again, I think it's, you know, pay attention, folks. Um, and... and uh, a, a part of the book that I was actually I paid close attention to, and I actually went and re-listened to our conversation. And there's a point that I glossed over really quick that you made, and then one that I want to come back to with the Joe Rant story because he he had to do real work that you know he wasn't someone like my kids who are you know with their spare time they're going to train and we're going to talk about patterns and we're going to move right. Uh, Joe didn't have those mentors, but he seemed to develop some real whether it was genetically gifted to him or athleticism. And it made me think that in the same way that even Teddy Roosevelt did some strongman stuff as a kid, uh, I almost feel like the younger a kiddo is, you should avoid, not even avoid specializing them, but these strongman style movements, and we, we, we alluded to them at the beginning of the show when I brought up the legs and lung challenge, but, you know, just through work, even there were some really transferable gifts given to him by, you know, chopping wood, lugging logs, uh, you know, hand, handling a jackhammer and some of those movements. And I just wonder, you know, as we specialize kids and, you know, there are some real gifts in not having access to equipment, right. And not having access to really great coaching, just letting kids do things awkwardly. Um, Joe definitely experienced that and he turned it into, a real physical uh, prowess, right? I mean, he was he he was a legit. I mean, talk, they kept talking about how big he got, how strong he was, and um, uh, again, another gift I think that we can give kids is just don't try and do too much for for them, you know. But also uh, make them do hard things, but simple things, and and do them aggressively. I think that's a, another portion. I just don't see there's a gap there with our, our current kiddos, especially affluent ones, you know, and I would, I would count my kids as definitely affluent kids. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you go, if we go back to kind of physical essentialism, you know, Pavel style in, um, 
simple and sinister he talks about how in russia at a certain time if someone went to a coach and said they wanted to get they wanted to get strong they would be shown how to do a turkish get up and told not to come back until they could do that with a hundred around a hundred pound weight right so figure they it wouldn't out even cover anything else right and even even gray cook told me one time in person he was like man i think you know, there's so many great lifts, whether it's swings or carries or deadlifts or squats, whatever. He said, to be honest, though, like I, if I could only do one movement, it may be the get up. And so I think that um, while the technical components of that for kids are great, like for um, once they get a bit older and more, tech, you know, movement savvy, so to speak, it's a good one. And, and particularly, um, you know, even recently, a friend and collaborator was like, man, you know, I just really want to get in shape. What would you suggest? And I was like, revised edition of simple and sinister the second edition <laughs> and whatever weight kettlebell he recommends or two kettlebells pavel recommends for an average strength um guy in there and he's really enjoying just getting into it and i think too with um there's a certain cognitive component that when you're you've got a 70 or 80 pound weight overhead or even starting off like a 20 pound weight just the the seven stages on the way up and the seven stages on the way down to having to focus um, and also not wanting to drop this big bloody ball of iron <laughs> or steel on your head. That's right. But, um, it, it, you can feel cognitive. There are days where I'll take the kids out to play basketball for, for say an hour and then I'll come back and all I'll do is get ups after that. Cause I'm already, you know, worked up a good sweat and got my dad cardio in. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Right. Old man style 39. But um, then I'll just do, do get ups and after the get ups, I, I'm just mentally trashed because there is that precision to it, and particularly if you start to put in some pauses and hold. So, but it could be as simple as just go and get a couple of those uh, $3 orange buckets from Home Depot and a, a bag or two of gravel, fill them up or fill them up with water, fill them up with sand, you know, vary the load a little bit, um, carry two of them up and down the driveway, carry one, and you could get a smaller bucket for your kids. You know, you could um, use like a, an emptied out milk jug or um, one of those water jugs that I uh, used to, to put in the espresso machine, you know, whatever it is. And even the other day, my um, my son came down and he, he said he didn't want to work out, but he picked up a smaller kettlebell. I bought him a couple of smaller ones a few years ago and just started walking up and down with it. Like it's so natural for a kid just to pick something up and be like, oh, oh yeah, just gonna, you know, you're walking, you're doing your carries. I'll just kind of follow you. Um and there is some of that monkey see, monkey do. So I think even sometimes the times when they're not working out with us, but they see that. And I don't want my kids imitating a weighted Turkish get up, by the way, while I'm not there or even like over the other side of the room. And I haven't noticed, but there is, um, yeah, definitely something to be said for those those functional lifts. And even I was going back and forth with the uh, the, the strong first like master coach, Mark Rifkin, who I think now is in his early 60s and. And um, I told him how when we moved to make a bit bit more room in the old budget for moving house, we you know we had sold the squat rack and some other things. So I'm basically down like a rowing machine and a few kettlebells right now. And uh, he was like, "Oh, what bells do you have?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I just got this this lighter one. You know, it's got my warm up weight, and then two heavier ones. And I've since since bought another one." But he was like, "Oh man, you, you're set for life." That's yeah, that's right. Need. Well, and, and I, the the simple and sinister uh, book has come up a few times on on our conversations, and you know I love it, and and I think when you keep things simple and you don't have a ton of implements, you actually 
you find ways to use your body in different ways. Like I think you brought up that, you know, make, make it heavier somehow. And maybe that means you have to go faster or do more or, or carry it longer or carry it differently. But, um, and I also like what you just said about the kiddos. Um, and what, what I've actually started to do is I won't, I make them train with me one day a week. It's one day. And I'm going to say, this is your training with me. But then every other time I'm training, I'll just open the garage and I'll just invite them. And what's interesting about that, rather than imposing this program on them, they'll just come out. And when they come out and train with me sometimes, we'll just put together a little simpler version of what I'm doing. Uh, For example, uh, you know, I used to try to overcoach them, but uh, I was deadlifting the other day and my son came and I goes, I'll train today. I'm like, okay. I was like, pick something up. You pick it. So he went and he, and I watched him meddle around with the bells and he picked up this little kid barbell we have. And eventually he settled on uh, this kettlebell and, and just watching him, him sort it out too. And again, this was going back to our, even our college thing. He was bought in a little bit. He walked out himself, he chose his bell and then we could go over a couple points with it. And, and it was fun. It, it's been, it's been fun. And, it, and it's also made me think do less, but just maybe be more inviting more than try to well, who was the quarterback, the Mervinovich project? You know, I don't want my house to be mm. that, you know, it's mm-hmm. more of just like, Hey, you're invited. And then along the way, I'm like, ah, why don't you fix your toes while you're doing that? You know, and mm-hmm. this less is more approach is, has been really helpful. And interestingly enough, I've also found that it's been helpful in the adult clients that I work with. Like it's just, Hey, today, rather than this crazy technical chipper with snatches building up to whatever percentage, uh, why don't you just sprint and carry something? And then they're like, well, what should I carry? I'm like, I don't know. You know, cause every now and then I'll just fill a kitty litter bucket with water. Like you said, deal with it sloshing around. So I don't know, figure it out, you know? And it, it's interesting that mind starts to work a little bit. And, um, maybe that mental fatigue you were talked about is just, just, you know, you're bought in a little bit more again. You're actually engaged in being aware of what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, just, recognizing that cognitive work just because we're not out dragging logs or we're not you know like joe joe rants in the book what that one summer like suspended from the side of this rock <laughs> face that they're jackhammering at so okay so we're not building physical muscle but i saw a stat i think you know my co-author brian mckenzie posted the other day where he said that like chess grandmasters can burn up to eight thousand calories a day mm. because the absolute concentration needed for that thing. And we know that, you know, at rest, the brain burns 20 something percent of our overall calories. So sure, I could see, I could see that. Um, But he was talking about like the concept of overall load. And I think um, in working with Fergus Conley and learning from him on the Game Changer book that we did, he talks about like these, these, the concept of balancing out volume, intensity, density, and collision. And the last year or two, I've been starting to think about that in terms of the work I do, which is not physical by any means. It's standing right here where I am talking to you now, writing, you know, day-to-day brands like Momentus and Hana and, and on it and some of these others, Champions Mind app. And uh, then obviously the fun stuff, right, of uh, the, the mid to long-term projects with the books. But there are the days when say Jim Afromo and I um, are working on two book projects together and we're on like our fourth day of interviewees where each interviewee is going to be a full chapter. There's a ton of prep. 
um, the conversations are very in-depth, they're very intensive, and then we, we debrief afterwards, assign who's going to work on that. You know, like those days are, are, are the, some of the most rewarding, but they're also really intense. So what my schedule doesn't always allow it, because again, I'm trying to support three other people on my income. But if I can follow that up with a day where the volume is a little bit less or the calls are more spaced out, so there's less density, and basically what I'm saying, like that VIDC model almost applies to cognitively, emotionally, everything. And the body doesn't know the difference in terms of stress, right, ultimately. But again, going back to the boys in the boat, that's a luxury that Joe Rance and his crewmates didn't have because the volume, intensity, density and collision were dialed up to nine or ten every day, both during the semester when they were training and racing and then when they were building themselves up physically in the summer, but doing it for a paycheck, earning a few cents an hour, jackhammering rock. Mm. And I like, yeah, you're right. You bring that up the, the, your early point about um, the cognitive thought burning calories. And then even these guys, you know, the, 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 the stress of thinking about probably having to pay for college at that time was probably something that got them going. Um, and, and, and again, uh, you said it differently than I was going to, but your physiology doesn't know what sport you're playing. Your physiology doesn't know, you know, anything except, you know, your heart rate's up. I need to balance out oxygen, carbon dioxide. I need fuel to do this. Like stress is stress. Um, and it, but it makes me think again, when I think about Joe and as stressed as his life was, he did have some outlets. And I don't know if the outlets that we have now are the outlets that are really helping us. I mean, like you were mentioning, our outlets now are social media and, and you know, yeah, blue light has some great things to us, but it's zapping us too much. Right. And the social media can make us really think funny things. And you know what Joe had as an outlet, which was, he loved music, you know, and when things were down and out, he'd sit on his porch and, you know, he'd pick, he'd pick the guitar. Was it a, a guitar or a banjo? And banjo. Then, yeah. yeah. He was he to play all sorts. Yeah. But it makes me think like, Two, along with balancing out this stress, how important is it to have something? You got to find it, and he found if he if he could find some enjoyment in something in that part, I think uh, we can too. And maybe it's as simple as understanding that reading a book is really important. Spending five minutes in your teeter chair or in your couch, maybe just focus on your breathing, like that's super super important. And where I even stole the your your um your body your physiology doesn't know what sport you're playing is from rob wilson who works with brian mckenzie and you know rob wilson is a guy who um i've become internet friends with and he's helped me put together this breathing webinar uh, for my school district to help teachers incorporate this into their teaching because we want these kids to focus uh we want people to focus we want people to be productive but we're forgetting that there's probably a mechanism to do that and it's simple as breathing and having these little deals where you're actually dealing with boredom or these kind of fun outlets. And, uh, it's it, again, it going to Joe, if, if Joe could play the banjo to do it, you know, what's your outlet, you know, what's your fun thing? What's your, mm-hmm. what's your mental gymnastics where you're just kind of dealing with yourself for a little bit. Yeah. hundred percent. It could be as simple as, I mean, you're writing 10,000 words know? a day, right? I mean, what are you doing? I mean, oh, man, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what, even within the writing though, like there are, like Jim and I, and for people that don't know, Jim Afromo is, is a sports psychologist that wrote wrote the book, The Champion's Mind. So we're now working together like day to day on The Champion's Mind app, which is kind of cool. You know, just like five, five minutes a day of daily mental skills training. It's pretty fun. Um, and then beyond that, as I said, we're doing two books. And, and I told him like, man, 
last Thursday and Friday, the, the level of relief and satisfaction I got of being able to set those just those two days aside for purely book writing. So I finished one chapter and got pretty far in another. And then just geeking out again on the interviews that we'd done some weeks ago, and we both kind of forgotten some of the highlights. And then I sent him a chapter, and then over the weekend he finished banging out a chapter, and we're almost trying to one-up each other at this point. Like catches how much fire. gold we can put in each of these. <laughs> yeah, and it just catches fire. So even just the joy of having that creative partnership with someone like Jim um, and having like the books at this point have almost become a creative outlet for me because day to day, you know, like you said, I'm banging out umpteen blog posts and that's good too. Like I enjoy working with all the clients I have, but so the task switching, you know, I, in an ideal world, maybe I would just be able to write books, but again, three mouths to feed that isn't happening anytime soon. Um, unless the next few royalty checks are way better than I think they'll be, but it's even if you within your discipline, whatever your profession is, maybe there's a certain kind of task where you can come to appreciate that more. And it's something you almost treat yourself mm. with at the end of the week or like this, the last couple of days of the month and really look forward to and kind of cheat that time as sacrosanct. Um, or it could be a routine like Winston Churchill would always take that daily bath and often twice a day, even while London's being bombed in the blitz. It was just, it was almost like his morning routine. Like we talk a lot about that. Um, Kennedy was a big napper. Churchill was a big napper. And both, you know, Kennedy was napping during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Churchill was napping while bombs were falling all around his ears. So I think that, um, you know, th th we forget those kind of things, too, that maybe it's just a part of your your daily routine that we, you know, you look at and you think, man, yeah, like that's either a reward at the end of the day or it's something, even if it's not a whole in quotes morning routine, which everyone's pushing, but it's you know, 10 minutes of reading in, in the morning, get up 10 minutes early, or it's just something just, you, you can find ways to reward yourself. And it doesn't have to be like a two week getaway to Jamaica, which would be awesome, yeah. by the way. So. Yeah, or, you know, a cheesecake, right? You can do little things to just sit and be with yourself. And I wanted to ask you, you brought up a cool thing. And you said task switching, and it, it you know, to, as you you're doing the same thing, uh, maybe writing a lot, but when you go from writing this article to that article to working on that book, do you have a mechanism to kind of go in and out of focus? And, and I bring it up because, um, you know, the idea to me is I can't just go and ramp up the intensity steadily. I almost, in the same way I kind of was looking at this legs and lung challenge, I like to go in and out and the, the, the wave will eventually just go up so do you have a little break like if you're writing an article for train heroic and then you know you have to finish one for on it do you go right from one to the next or do you have like a task switching three minute breakdown between i mean how, how do you mm -hmm. batch your giant loads like that because you know it got a lot going on man you're, you're juggling quite a bit no, i don't know and again it's nothing like joe rance <laughs> hauling <laughs> logs at yeah. age 11 and stuff like that but um yeah i think that calendar blocking is super important and sometimes um i learned this from chase jarvis who founded creative live the photographer uh, that sometimes that block doesn't have to be unidirectional it could just say admin or it could say billing or it could say email catch up you know and, and then just trying to sync those up with um your chronobiology and just knowing yourself a bit better. So I, I, I'm a night owl, you know, um, 
so is my youngest son, so is my wife. Um, the, the youngest son is the only early bird. So he's on fire from the time, you know, there's comic books all over the kitchen table and there's this prolific output before anyone else is up. But for me, I prefer to try to schedule the admin and billing and setting up interviews for the morning. And then I really hit my stride in the afternoon. But yeah, just just trying to use like Cal Newport's deep work to to really time block stuff. And I'm probably not as good at stepping away when you're meant to. You know, some people think that sweet spot is right around like 50 to 55 minutes with like a 15 to 20 minute break in the middle. And sometimes like Friday, I, I was telling Jim this yesterday that um, I could feel the flow state start to diminish, like my, my energy level starting to diminish. But and I probably should have stopped. But I, I was having so much fun writing this chapter and I knew he would do some of the a couple of bits. I was like, yeah, I knew you would geek out about this and this. So I just wanted to keep pushing it. So I pushed that flow state out to like three and a half, four hours. And by the end of it, I couldn't, I could barely see straight. I came out with my hair <laughs> on fire, you know, well, <laughs> like the scientist from the lab. But I think that so, so sometimes you'll, you'll catch that where I was almost transitioning from micro flow to macro flow. But I think really the key for me is um, at the start, it used to be at the start of the week, but now it's before the end of the month looking at prioritizing around deadlines, you know, because a, a couple of my clients are super organized with their editorial calendar. And it's like, well, this piece is due August 7th. This is due August 14th, you know, in this kind of more of a weekly cadence. Sure. Whereas others like Train Heroic, um, they are organized, but they just say, you know, get us your five pieces by the end of the month. So that one I have a bit. So I just work backwards from deadlines and what. Try to differentiate always the same i calendar block and then within those calendar blocks you know i'll go play like this little mod it's called take two like a modified form of scrabble with with the kids or cool. we have like one of those little mini pool tables on the floor so we'll play that or i'll go get the mail and do something that doesn't involve a screen so yeah i mean i think research wise people say that sweet spots around 50 minutes ish but i can sometimes take it out as far as two two and a half three hours and then just knowing, like I said earlier, that that is a super high day on the wave, to your point, that waviness is important. And I think it was Brett Jones, um, the performance director at Strong First, that told me, uh, you can do the same thing every day as long as you don't do the same thing every day. And <laughs> I think that holds for your, for your workouts too, right? Like yeah. You could do just kettlebell swings and get-ups every day, but doing – 100 swings say with a, a 70 pound bell and then doing this number of get-ups with the same weight and then repeating that for seven days you're probably going to break down so you know well, to, increase or decrease the volume decrease the weight you know that i love that term you use like waviness because i think that 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 holds for cognitive work it holds for emotionality and it holds for physicality as well there you go waviness we're working with it we're gonna we're gonna coin that one somehow but and to kind of speak on how i've kind of done my waviness with training um and what i've also done to kind of do the same thing but differently like i've definitely like, i think you should squat i think you should lunge you know the push-up and these kind of primal movement patterns are important but i used to always be fixated that the barbell had to be every day 
But mm. through COVID, I've been doing a lot more body weight stuff. I like the kettlebell. So I've kind of fallen into the, like this, you know, mon- Monday's my barbell day where I'm hitting some uh, Wendler style percentages. Then I'll kind of back off and I'm doing the similar style movements, but then I'm hitting the kettlebell that next day. And then the third strength day is just body weight stuff. And, and in, in a weird way, I'm doing the same stuff, but it's differently. And, and it, kind of getting away from the barbell has made me like it more and bringing some other things and kind of dipping this body weight back stuff back in has made me realize like you don't just always have to do something heavy to be strong. Like it, 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 and I think too, to take that to the point about mental training as well, you know, maybe you extend it by reading a book this day, then maybe extend it by trying to be with yourself for a little bit. And then maybe creatively you're trying to play the guitar a little bit. So, you know, it, the same thing every day, I think, is awesome. Uh, it's something that's important, and it's something that folks can, you know, find a way to to try. I think incorporate it into the mental side of things as much as the physical. Um, but 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 important stuff. All of us need to get into. Um, last last person I not maybe not the last, but a, a person I want to bring into this book is uh, George Pocock, uh, and and our, our thought about him and his tinkering and. I think he's another place to find contrast importantly because I'm as guilty as anybody of trying to do too much. I like podcasting. I want to teach. I want to be a good dad. I want to pick up elk hunting. I tried jujitsu. My son plays hockey. I want to coach hockey. I'm going like a maniac in too many directions. Then you look at George Pocock and he's like, I'm a built boat. <laughs> That's it. And I'm going to, maximize this but even within that he diverges in so many places i mean one of my favorite chapters or moments in the book is when pocock you know who you want to talk about collaboration they couldn't figure out this rants kid and it probably took a conversation with pocock where they just didn't talk about how to train he said this is why i use this kind of wood and this is what it does and over time and they talk about their grains and it's just talked you know in this day and age where people are pushing this generalist whatever I mean, he's a great example of just niching down and being a true expert in something and the value of yeah. it. I mean, he's in and, and his value didn't just stop at building the boats. I mean, he was pretty much, I mean, assistant coach, if you, I mean, maybe, maybe the head guy, I mean, he might've been the fuel behind the whole thing. Not that, not that, um, not that, uh, Albrechtson, you know, I'm sure he was a motivator. Right. But, uh, Pocock to me is like the unsung hero of the whole team in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, you know, it talks about when during the Great Depression that teams are petitioning him and saying, you know, I can't afford to pay your usual prices or even the coach at at, uh, Washington's great rival Cal, right, where he was being aggressive and saying, well, you charge too much. And and, and Pocock writes back something like, "I, I have no interest in trying to be the cheapest, but I think I still have a decent shot at being the best. Sure something like that and just it's basically saying like look the quality of the cedar that i find you know and all the 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 hours that go into this like this is still a reasonable price for the for what i'm delivering and i think it that struck a chord with me because i have conversations um like with the grammy nominated music composer bt recently about this kind of thing and um and others you know jim and and other kelly star other co-authors and the creative arts are being devalued in the sense that while Fiverr or People for Hire or whatever is, it can be really cool. Like I have a buddy who's doing a kid's book um, about the, the golfing pioneer, old Tom Morris, as it's, you know, the 200th anniversary of um, 
of something or other coming up with him and and he managed to find this woman in in dundee scotland who's going to do some just incredible illustrations for him so yes those kind of services are helpful in terms of helping you you know match you with people who provide the services you want but at the same point you're going to find people in other countries bidding on projects that you could not I mean, I remember the most stupid thing the last time I was on LinkedIn, which was some months ago, there was something about like articles on health and wellness and something. I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. And um, until I got down to what, you know, the range. And I think they were willing to pay like 15 or 20 euros an article. It's like they might be able to find someone somewhere to do that in the world. Um, Where, you know, the the dollar goes a bit quicker, (laughs) a bit further or whatever. But in reality, Bill, I can't get out of bed for that that kind of re- remuneration. So I think that the fact that it was kind of reinforcing to me that you, you need to, as a creator of any kind, you need to value yourself mm. um, properly and you need to try to not get into this race to the bottom of the barrel mentality that all these freelancer websites um, have kind of set into play. And the gig economy, you know, is partly responsible for this as well. And that isn't to say, you know, another Chase Jarvisism, I think, is that your your five hundred dollar client is never going to be your your five thousand dollar client, which will never be your fifty thousand dollar client. So realistically, if you're, you know, somebody puts you in touch with a buddy at a startup, and you you like them, and you like the work they're doing, you want to help them out, they're still financing it out their own checkbook. Maybe okay, well. You may have to do a little bit for them to prove yourself and then do a bit more for a lot less than you would normally do. So there are different lenses you might want to look at opportunities through. But Pocock never lowered his prices. He never devalued what he was doing. And I even see this in outdoor companies that are doing a good thing like Vormi, the the technical wool-based guys out of Pagosa Springs, Colorado. They don't do sales. They're not doing gimmicks around Labor Day or Black Friday. It costs whatever it costs because the ladies and probably guys do that are sewing their stuff, you know, are are in Pagosa Springs. They're using Rocky Mountain wool and it's just going to cost more. And sure, not everyone can afford it. But if you buy one of their jackets, that thing is probably going to like a kettlebell is going to be an investment that will outlive you and you'll be given to your kids. So I think that with Pocock, to me, I was just in a place where I was having some of these conversations with other creators about like, man, like how bad is this race to the bottom going to get in music, in writing, in the graphical arts? And then he is a good example that he managed to not only survive, but thrive in the, the heart of the Great Depression because his only standard was excellence mm-hmm. and everybody knew it. Yeah, he, he's a really cool character and I think a coach that and again, he was a coach too. And and I think what's actually fun to bring him up with you is, you know, you've made an interesting comment about during World War II, you know, we got to come over and, 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 and save the ship and, and help with World War II. But if it wasn't for him and his presence, you know, he's an Englishman coming, coming our way that pro- this story doesn't take place as well. So I thought that was, that's an interesting, that was an interesting look at from you, but he's just a, and he put a real poetry to even the technique of it. And I, th- I wanted to speak to you about this um, even with something for me that looks out from the outside looking in rowing looks really simple right but when you hear him talk about the strokes and in this book they kind of 
contrast two different styles of stroking. There's that shorter, punchier one that I think the boys in the boat were working with that Pocock brought to them, which might be like, you know, as opposed to like that longer um, elite, style uh what they were doing back east i mean these guys were, were getting work um and i know you've done a little bit of rowing work with the waterman book uh that, that your collaboration with kelly starrett and just just the work and the technique involved and again to continue the conversation about pocock to take something so simple as a rowing stroke and really put meaning behind it and um perfecting it and then perfecting it with a group of nine kids and then you know, going over to Germany and conquering Hitler with a rowing stroke. I mean, again, the value of just being simple or simple and sinister or as a, how does Brett Bartholomew put it? He's a great strength coach too. He goes, uh, I forget what his term is, but, um, Oh, savagely simple or or something like that. I mean, there's real value in in being a perfectionist with that one thing and being obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think so. Just, um, essentialism right yeah some form or another well cool the last the last the last part and maybe to to walk away from this conversation with like a kind of a grand view on things and maybe the the character that the the character that i actually spent the most time thinking about with this book and really would like to know more about is harry rance joe's father and there's a couple reasons for that uh one at first you you're like this guy um I can't believe he abandoned his kid. But then you're also thinking he's conflicted. His wife died, and he's got this other wife he's trying to make happy. And then you still think at the end, you know, he kind of he kind of hides from his son for a while, and he's he's an interesting fella, and he's almost abandoning his new kids with Tula too a little bit to some degree. But then he also throws another gem at you. There's some really cool moments in the book where he's talking with his son, and he's like. The only way you don't see a shooting star is if you don't look for it. And and Joe even takes that idea and, you know, you know, he gets his girlfriend to be smitten with him by looking for clovers on that. This guy is so as a father, he's just such a he's I'm conflicted about him and I'll tell you I can't stop thinking about, you know, what was more of his story and and and, and that sort of general conflict. Uh He's just an interesting guy with me in that regard. I can't stop thinking about him. Is that's the character that kind of keeps me coming back to the story to learn more about? Uh, is there a particular moment or a particular character? Or, and I bring this question up because I want people to read this book, and I want people to read this book now because I think it would it's re- it'll be helpful in in terms of giving real perspective. Because I really don't think we're yeah we have a weird virus, but I don't think we have problems. I mean, I think we just need nothing we can't fix personally. So, just just. Uh, run with run with a kind of closing thought or or something that truly captivated you about this book that keeps you coming back because you've read it years ago and you're still mm-hmm. interested in talking about it and I think yeah. everybody will be I, I don't see how you can't find somebody in this book to kind of attach to and, and have in the back of your mind yeah I mean I think it um, it's somewhat torn between Joe Rance and po- Pocock like I said Pocock from this standpoint that Sure, he wasn't using words. He was using cedar and other wood, but is a true creator and pride in your work, craftsmanship, and just, um, you know, apprenticed under his father, you know, kind of keeping the family business going. There's just so much to to admire and like and, and how singular he was in, in his vision and his purpose. So there's that side. And then just with rants like the the ups and downs of this thing, like it wasn't enough for him to have 
work ethic, right, or to be strong, um, be able to apply power in the boat. But it was really about was he able to uh, – there's a great conversation between him and Pocock where Pocock kind of intimates that he, he says something along the lines of like, look, sometimes when I watch you and things are getting difficult, you, you act like you're enough. Like if you just grid it out and you just go harder and faster that you're enough to power this thing over – the line and that's admirable and it, it you know i like your work ethic but there are seven other guys and it's got to be this synchronicity and so i think too like that within myself um i like solo projects in some ways because i mean it's a control issue probably i'm in control of it but then again when i've kind of the co-authoring thing is interesting because most, you know, all the, all the co-authors I've had have been experts in their field. And I'm just the guy, I'm like the music producer in the studio, you know, that no one ever sees behind the big mixing desk and that's good. And that's okay for me to come along. That's how I can serve as a servant leader is to be the person that connects the audience over here with the expert that has information to help them. And I've been able to really, I wouldn't say subjugate myself, but really embrace what the other person brings to the table in all these collaborations and just continue to find good, you know, lucky to find good people. So I think that there are so many parallels, again, even though we're talking about two completely different times and eras, um, but between what Joe Rance had to do and what you have to do in any team situation, any group situation where you have to give everything you have, but you can't steamroller other people to to express that and you have to be willing to let sometimes let someone else like it, whoever it was in maybe shorty hunt in the stroke seat was the one that had to basically you know show sure the coxswain's in the front with his megaphone yelling to set the pace but physically the stroke seat is the one in the boat that had to set the pace and i think sometimes in a team situation we lose sight of that and we try to like you said we try to outwork a situation or yeah. do too much Whereas if we would only kind of ask for help more often and also look to the pace that others are trying to set around us, that's when you kind of fall into that rhythm. Whereas going it alone is only going to take you so far. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Rance rightfully so had to do so much alone. So he definitely had some trust issues, right? So, I mean, even even when he came to trust his team, going to, I, I think of that moment where they're, you know, the first freshman class and they're going across and he brings out his guitar in front of his buddies. And they start hoking at him the way guys do. And then that guitar didn't come out anymore. So he, you know, he had to manage that. And, you know, you know, I think of Joe Rance too, because there's, I, as a, as a young man in college and even in high school, I used to look at my home situation as a point of people should feel sorry for me or give me more credit to do what everyone else does. Cause I'm doing this with a weird home situation. And just to give you some, my parents had me young, but I didn't, I didn't have for any lack of help. I didn't have for any lack of people supporting me. But what I had a lack of is it coming from mom and dad. I just grew up differently. And I used to look at that as a crutch. And then I'm reading this book and I'm like, okay, I had no crutches. You can't talk about that anymore. My parents were never married and they had me 17 and 18. But aunt and uncle stepped in. Grandma stepped in. You know, I've, I've fostered coaches and relationships. It worked out. You know what I mean? It made me a little bit better maybe to appreciate certain relationships. But... 
No, it's wild. There's just so much in there in this book that I think anyone can grab to, you know, at this moment where we're all looking for places to focus or, or help or whatnot. I think this is a great place to go. You know what I mean? And, and and there's just a lot of parallels with training. There's a lot of parallels with relationship building. There's a lot of parallels with maybe working on things that you really value. I don't know, but there's too many to, to ignore and to not talk about. So um, I appreciate you, Phil, coming on again and providing some insight with this. Um, no, and- it's good. I hope you get the author Daniel James Brown on that would be a, a great conversation to have a little harder to get a hold of than um I would like I went to his website and he I guess there was um I contacted one agent and then she's gone and someone else so we're working on it It would be cool to get him on um to do that and um to continue this reading thing this reading uh jaunt we're on I'm, I'm actually engrossed in two books right now um Rob Wolf's um I forget his co-author I, I feel terrible. I, I can't mention a co-author, but Sacred Cow is an interesting book that I'm starting, but I'm halfway also through Blood and Thunder, which is a cool Kit Carson book about the conquering of the West. Um, you know, d- is there anything on your reading list right now? I mean, I know you're doing a lot of writing, yeah. but you personally, it's just a kick through or Kinda, maybe for the next there's one? Almost, there's almost two parts and it's too much information, but that, you know, as you know, that Churchill um, daily bath ritual in the evening is a thing for me. So that's kind of nonfiction. So I'm kind of, binging david grand's book books right now so i I finished um killers of the flower moon and now i'm reading the lost city of z which is uh, or zed as people would say in my my homeland um so the first one is about this um really conspiracy to screw the osage indians out of their oil rights Mm. um at the turn of the century and um then the the macro is kind of how the fbi became what it became partly as a result of this case and so that's really interesting micro macro and then um the lost city of z is this uh this crazy well somewhat crazy british explorer who thinks that there's this this lost city um in the amazon rainforest and it's it, it and goes out to um to find it several times and eventually with his son and his son's best friend, they never come back. What really happened to them? And it's kind of a good companion piece to Candace Millard's the river of doubt. And so that's, um, that's about Teddy Roosevelt's own journey into the Amazon, which we've talked about previously. And, um, the river of doubt tributary that comes off of the main Amazon river and him and one of his sons and some, some other folks that end up down there. So it really is the second book is confirmation that um, I never want to go to the Amazon rainforest for any length of time because <laughs> na- nature doesn't want us there and it's trying to kill us <laughs> to tell us that. Right. Um, but, it, but yeah, both really interesting stories. Um, and so, yeah, David Graham. And then he has another one that I read that I want to re- wrote um, that I want to reread. I think it's called like the white darkness or something like that. And it, it's about this explorer that goes out to try to set this um, endurance record in the coldest conditions on earth. Very cool. Disaster results. So yeah, the guy's just a master reporter. And I, I saw recently, I think that someone paid five or $6 million for the movie rights to the, um, killers of the flower moon so that, i guess that's going to be a big hollywood thing and, and lost city of z i think is already an amazon original movie so yeah that kind of non-fiction and then for fiction later in the evening my my thing is always like world war Two um alternative fictions or there you go. historical fiction so well yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by the flower book um just because it seems to be that 
the, the Native American thing's interesting. This Blood and Thunder, Kit Carson, and this Navajo situation, are, it's a really interesting read. I'll, I'll, I'll probably be able to pull some parallels. So maybe I'll dive into that, and uh, we'll have to get you back on again, Phil. These are great conversations. Right. I think they're worthy to have, and uh, it's cool how we can cover parenting, training, you know, mental stuff, and just kind of reiterate some cool concepts like paying attention, keeping things simple, work hard when you can, you know what I mean, and dipping in and out of focus. So um, I appreciate your time, man. Folks, if you like Phil's perspective on things, look out for his projects. Phil, I know we plug uh, philwhitebooks.com, but some of your blog posts maybe that you follow, I mean, who 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 are your co-collaborators and who are you writing for where folks can maybe check some of your smaller pieces out? Yeah, so the smaller pieces, a lot of... Um... A lot of them for Train Heroic are ghostwritten. So um, T- Tim DeFrancesco, you know, is as I said, was at the Lakers, is a great one. And then there's um, one of my favorite collaborators there is a, an Irish uh, coach called Darren Dillon, who okay. owns a gym over there in Dublin, and then is uh, is also the the performance director for Shamrock Rovers FC in the Irish Premier League. So he he has a lot of great stuff on mental health. So cool. if you typed in like Darren Dillon, Train Heroic mental health um that was a really profound series and something that um yeah i was privileged to to learn from darren on that and then outside of that just um yeah pretty excited to be working with jim both on these books but then also the champions mind app so i think it's like champsmindapp.com and there's a blog on there where jim and i interview athletes and coaches so yeah i think that 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 mental game is something that we we often gloss over but you know whether it's mental toughness or self-talk or visualization, like those are things that are not just top athletes do, but all top performers do daily. And so, yeah, I mean, five minutes a day is a, is a pretty easy win. And again, just privileged to be able to take the knowledge in Jim's head and hopefully get it out in a beneficial way. Well, I'm torn because, you know, we were talking about making people buy into these situations. I'm wondering if I should, uh, if I should Google these things and Darren Dillon and link them in the show notes or, if I should make people do it themselves, they'll probably appreciate it more, right? So uh, <laughs> we'll put a little bow in this conversation with that idea. So get out there, guys. Find a little bit of work. Find Phil's stuff. Uh, engage with it. Read it. Or find something else. Enjoy yourself, guys. Um, and uh, this was fun. Um, we have some projects for you. Check out Phil's stuff. Check out the Legs and Lung Challenge. Uh, Trent Fisher of the Born and Raised Group. He likes it. Um, he's giving me some good feedback. You'll like it, too. Um, pat your congressman on the back, your senator on the back. You know, even, hey, give Trump some credit, man. I mean, he put some public he put public lands in your hands so um you know let's recognize the good things do some good things and get after it guys this is a uh, backcountry and barbells phil white man can't appreciate you enough thanks for joining us and uh, until the next one guys train hunt and live your best life possible phil thank you sir thank you